Every minute of this hour, you'll regret it. That's the stuff. Michelle, like Sean and I know each other, talk through DM every day. And every day. He's, he's got horrible political opinions. So rather than do a traditional intro, Michelle, I think we should jump right into it because I could talk to Sean for hours and hours and days and days and just bore the ever living soul. You could talk to a you. lot of people for hours and hours and days and days. Just so you're used to it. <laughs> I know Sean well enough to where I can, I can sort of improv the bio. You ready for oh, it? Oh, I'm ready. I'm going to do it. Sean Colin Smith uh, was born and raised in uh, the great state of Virginia, United States. He majored in journalism and was like a journalist for like a while. And then he met this girl named Allison and she's from New Jersey. And like she was also a journalist and they like they like really liked each other. And so then they got married and then Sean was like, I'm going to write some scripts. And then he wrote some scripts and then he entered some contests and he won some things. And then he signed with the manager and then he and Allison um, you know, the person he married, he, they were like, okay, well, let's go to Los Angeles. And so then they came to Los Angeles and then Sean got uh, a new manager and then he started writing for, um, a TV show and now he writes for another TV show. And also Allison is now, um, writing and producing her first scripted film, just side note. Um, and that's Sean's bio. Then, uh, wow. Accurate. Very accurate. More than 30 <laughs> seconds, but okay. That was not there. That was five seconds in my brain. <laughs> time, time slows down when you're the one talking, you know? I'm, yes. I forgot the most important part. Yeah. Um, I'm also like kind of friends with Sean. So I, I know him personally and I can get his autograph. Uh, whenever whenever you, want. you want. Pretty much. Except Wednesdays. Sean, hi. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you for the intro. Uh, honestly, that's my entire life in a nutshell. So there's really nothing more for me to say. Did I did I miss anything important? No, no, that was good. I'm currently good. a story editor on Chicago PD, but that's mm -hmm. about it. Which is a new, newish position for you, which we'll get into in a sec. Sounds good. My first question, though, I want to just lead off the, the journalism side of things. Why did you want to transition to scripted stuff or was that always the plan? Uh, no, that's a good question. It, it wasn't always the plan. I kind of saw myself as being a journalist forever. Uh, I mean, I majored in it in college. It was my my love for 10, 15 years. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think what may have happened to a lot of people between like 2007, 2015, around that time, was we're kind of sailing through the, the peak golden age of TV, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, The Leftovers. And I perhaps naively thought, Oh, I love this TV. I could replicate this. I could also write good TV, even though I've never taken a TV writing class. So um, I just decided to try to start writing a pilot script. I had an idea that I had written on a napkin that had been in a drawer for years and years. And I opened up the drawer, took out the napkin. I was like, oh, I think I could write that now. Wait, um, literally a napkin? Yeah, it was literally a napkin. Like I wrote it down on a napkin. Um, fantastic. And I, I think what what I wrote down on the napkin was a hitman you hire to kill yourself. And uh, and then I was like, oh, that's an interesting concept. And then I put it in the drawer and then I got my master's degree. I started working as a journalist. I started teaching at a university over the next five years. And then one day I you know, told you I decided I wanted to write a script. So I opened the drawer and I'm like, oh, hitman you hire to kill yourself. That's an interesting idea. I never did anything with it. And so that was my first pilot script. Um, and really the... The reason I wanted to do it was because I wanted to be a part of all the great TV that I saw um, on the air at the time. And obviously, it's still on the air. There's still a lot of great shows. But I wanted to 
be a part of that. So that was kind of the impetus for it. So you're a byproduct of that golden age of uh, of TV, really. That for AMC sure. sort of era. Yeah, yeah. And and reading those scripts, too, was like the, the Breaking Bads and the Mad Men's. Reading the pilots, it's like, oh, I think I could do this. You know, I think I have the, the at least the journalistic acumen to have the discipline to sit down and write every day. Um, I think I could do that is what I was thinking at the time. So speaking of journalistic acumen, what about being a journalist makes you special in a writer's room? I mean, I don't know if I'd use the word special, but I, I certainly, uh, hey, I would contribute. <laughs> oh, thank Go you. Ahead. Thank you. Um, I mean, so yeah, that, that's a, again, that's a great question. And it's interesting because I think a lot of the skills that you have as a journalist, maybe you don't think are transferable to be a screenwriter uh, or to be in a writer's room, but it, they're actually, they very much are like you can, there's an analogous transferable set of skills. So it's like, first of all, when you think about your day as a journalist, you have to wake up and come up with ideas, like several ideas uh, to pitch to the room when you get in first thing in the morning. And if you don't, you're going to lose your job. If you, if you don't do that several times, you're going to lose your job. Uh, and when you are in a writer's room, you do the same thing, right? When you go in there to pitch your ideas, you have to pitch them very cleanly and very concisely, like, you know, 60 to 90 seconds in and out. And you still might get a no, but at least you get the idea out there so cleanly and concisely that they can grasp it and they don't start drifting halfway through the conversation and start texting somebody, which does happen in newsrooms all the time, by the way. Um, mm. So you have to do that in a writer's room as well, right? And then, by the way, you have to be prepared for the no. You have to be prepared that if you pitch an idea that you might have taken 30, 45, 60 minutes to craft the pitch of it, the idea of it, the conclusion of it, um, that they're just going to simply say, no, what else you got, right? Both of those things happen in newsrooms and writer's rooms as well. And so on top of all that, at the end of the day as a journalist, you're expected to write something new and have it be ready to publish. When you're in a writer's room, you're expected that if they say, hey, we need these three to five pages done by the end of the day, you go off in your writer's the whole and you get those three to five pages. And so being a journalist really did lead me to have all those skills and preparation for being in the room. Um, and by the way, the other big thing too, is as a journalist, if, if one of your colleagues pitches a story and maybe it's not quite there, but you can sense that there is something there to work with, we would try to help them out and say, Oh, I have a source you can talk to, to kind of elevate that to a new level. In the writer's room, it's the same deal, right? It's that yes and, where it's like someone makes a pitch, maybe it's 80% there, but you can sense the showrunner isn't quite on board. So maybe you jump in and say, that's a great idea, and it would tie in with the theme of XYZ. And maybe that's what gets the showrunner from being like, oh, that's not bad, to yes, let's try to explore that, right? Mm -hmm. So all those, all those were, were transferable for sure. That That's a good note on like the teamwork that's involved on a staff and – uh, not to, to divert too much down this rabbit hole, which you and I can probably talk about for a long time, but why you look at certain writers and they have a certain expectation of like what it takes to get into to TV. And they think 99% of it is just writing talent. And is it, or is it like 50% and 50% is not being a pain in the ass and being <laughs> helpful and being supportive and, and um, civilized. Yeah, I, I think it's totally the latter. I mean, what is it, Stephen King who said that, you know, talent's a dime a dozen, right? You know, talent is not, talent is important, but it's not the thing that's going to get you over the edge. Like, for instance, if someone reads my script and they call a meeting with me to, to staff on a show, they already know I have talent. If they decided they read the script, they liked it enough to call a meeting, they know I have talent. What they want to know is the other 50% you just said, which is 
Are they a pain in the ass? Are they good in the room? Are they going to interrupt me when I'm talking? Um, if I ask them a question, can they answer it in 30 seconds or less? Or are they going to go on a 12-minute diatribe about like all this other stuff that doesn't matter? And then I'm going to be like drifting away and I don't like this person. So right. that 50% is so crucial. And I do think it holds a lot of people back. I think there is a tendency to maybe blame other situations or other instances or other people for you not getting into a room. And a lot of it comes down to personality. Like if they talk with you for 30 minutes, which is what Michael Shore did for Field of Dreams over Zoom, and they're like, that was excruciating. Now imagine in their head, they're thinking, okay, can I spend eight hours a day with that person? If that 30 minutes was painful, what the hell are you going to do for five days a week for 12 weeks, like Mm -hmm. or 40 weeks if it's Chicago PD. So it's huge. And I think not a lot of, not enough people talk about it on social media. It's always like, here's how you write a script. Here's the formatting here. How, here's how you do character arcs and all that stuff is so important. But it's like, once you get that done, you have to start looking at the other 50%, which is, can I work with this person in a room for nine months? You know, and if the answer is no, you're not going to get a job. I wonder if someone, some of them look at it as like, well, now you're analyzing my character. You're analyzing my inbred personality. Not inbred, but like, in, you know. Innate. You're, uh, <laughs> you let's let's person- explore that. Let's explore that a little inbred. bit. Uh, the inbred personality. Yeah, here we go. No, I mean, but you're right. We, you are. You are analyzing the character. Like, who yeah. are you? And do I want to spend time with you? And if the Which answer is, is no, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I and I, yeah, it's totally fair game. I mean, look. I think, honestly, that's fair game for any job where you're going to be sitting in a room with people. Absolutely. And, and so I had someone ask me the other day, um, he asked, I went to give like a little guest lecture at, at this community college called Pierce, where I used to teach. It's a great mm-hmm. school. And this guy asked me point blank, like, I'm really awkward around people. Would I be able to get a job in a writer's room? And I told him, look, dude, er- almost every writer is awkward at some point in their lives. I was awkward at some point in my life. And it's like, and I still am in a lot of instances, I think. But it's like when you get a bunch of introverted, awkward writers in a room, it, it's almost kind of like they cancel each other out in terms of those mm-hmm. those personality traits being unique. And it's you, you all kind of you shed that armor and it's kind of a shared when you shed the armor. It's, it's a shared understanding that this is a place where you can pitch ideas, where you will get rejected, but you're not going to take it personally. You're all in service of the bigger idea. And if you can understand that right away. I think the awkwardness kind of goes away and what kind of takes its place is an understanding that we're just trying to make the best piece of art that we can make. Right. And just take away jealousy and pettiness and like a political nature of it, where it's like, well, their idea got pitched better than mine and they've accepted three of theirs and zero of mine. And it's like, it's probably not because you're terrible at your job. It's just, maybe you got to pitch better. Maybe you got to come up Mm -hmm. with better ideas. Um, And as long as you kind of, shed those neuroses of being jealous or petty or whatever then i think that's when it becomes better yeah it's but but it's personality's huge it is huge in the room 100 percent. not a writing example but i was in charge of interviewing about 30 young adults for a state department exchange program all these people had submitted videos of themselves like videos that they prepare telling and they're they're just 
by the way, they're all journalists. Um, and the videos about, you know, what their goals are, what they're, what they're doing now, what their current projects are, stuff like that. And, you know, then they would have like a, a written piece that they submitted and then like their resume, right? All this stuff. So, and, and all these applicants had been rated on a scale of one to 10. So some of these people didn't score so high, but then when they got into their, well, the Zoom room with me and then we spoke, you know, asked them five to six questions and their answers were amazing. Yeah, maybe their application was like better, better than average, perhaps, but it's not like necessarily blowing us out of the water. But their interaction, you know, on Zoom was just amazing. Then we had this one case where, okay, my my partner who was um, interviewing as well, he was like, okay, I gave this person a nine. So nine out of 10. And I was like, all right, I have high, high expectations for this girl. And she came on and oh my God, I was like, "Mm -mm, no, it just, just wasn't working. She, every question, I don't think she answered, but she went on talking for like five to 10 minutes for each one. And we're like, okay, we're already behind, you know, she was a bubbly F, you know, effusive, effervescent, like lovely person. And I'm sure it would have been fine, but, but yeah, ultimately we're like, no, she cannot swing it in a room and I have to be the one to spend three weeks with her, mm-hmm. you know? So I was like, can I imagine myself here in Austin, like hanging with these people? No, no. And I hear a, once in a while, I'll see a tweet or I'll hear from a writer direct who's like, oh, this person I know got staffed on this show, but like, I'm a way better writer than they are. I'm like, I think you've identified the problem <laughs> without realizing it, you arrogant prick. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's there's more there's more to it than that. And to, to your comment before, Sean, when you say that's not something that's talked about a lot, uh, I know one person who tweeted about it um, to try to comment on it, and uh, they were <laughs> summarily harassed afterwards. Yeah. Do you remember who that was? I, I think it was, uh, you know, it was me, uh, and I, I was that right? <laughs> Yeah. What? Yeah, you were ratioed, at least. You were just, the, the, some of the comments were... I went back and looked at them recently just for pure entertainment. And I'm like, it's just comical, you know, yeah, um, it, it's, it's hilarious. And, you the know, denial. What, the, what the sad thing is, is uh, all that's happened since then is I've been stabbed twice. and got a, got a title bump. And so I obviously didn't know what I was talking about when I said that. Um, no, of course not. But, but I mean, look, the most succinct way to say it is you have to be good on the page that gets you the meeting. And when you're in the meeting, you have to be good in the room. And if you can do those two things, you're going to have a really good shot at getting staffed. Um, I know that sounds like an oversimplification, but both of those things are hard to do. Being good on the mm-hmm. page is difficult. Being good in a room can be difficult. And so if you can master them both, then that's, a, that's going to go a long way. Right. Your first room with Field of Dreams, uh, it was mo- it was all over Zoom, right? We It was mostly Zoom, like 80, 80% Zoom. Uh, we were in the room for maybe a week and a half. Uh, and then Mike got COVID. And mm. so then we had to shut the room. We didn't shut it down, but we transferred it back over to Zoom. And then I think about four weeks after that, we went back into the room for another 10 days or so. So it was like nine weeks over Zoom, three weeks uh, in person. And just having conversations with you about it, um, to the to your coworkers' credit, uh, you've never had anything negative to say about anybody. You've lucked out and had um, great co-writers and great, great people on staff that you've worked with at the same time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that room, I couldn't have asked for a better first room. Mike's a great leader. Um, He's this guy that is so brilliant and incisive and insightful when it comes to fixing story, breaking story. But he also has like just a delightful penchant for wasting time, which is like put in like the best Mm -hmm. possible way. 
So we'll just be sitting around trying to crack this scene. And he'll be like, did you guys ever see like that Muppet scene where they're like making fun of this one movie? We have to watch it. And he like Googles it on YouTube and brings it up. And then it's like a five minute sketch that's hilarious. And it kind of like breaks the tension of the room. And then he'll be like, all right, who has another video that's funny? Let's find another one. And then we're like, we'll do that. And then he'll be like, okay, well, we got to get back to work, guys. Stop wasting time. Why are you wasting my time? And it's like, it, it's so, I don't know. He has, he has a keen awareness for when someone's attention is drifting or when something isn't quite being fixed the way it needs to be. And I feel like one of his ways to maneuver around that is let's just waste some time. Let's just laugh and have some fun and then we'll get back to it. And so that I cannot say how helpful that was um, in terms of creatively speaking, it was just kind of open yeah. things up or. Yeah. I mean, cause it's kind of like when, when you do that, whatever little tension there is, which there usually wasn't any, but it's like whatever internal tension or anxieties there might be of like, why can't I crack this? It dissipates immediately when you start just having fun and just doing sure. nonsense. Um, and so, and then on top of that, I mean, every writer he brought in there, uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself aside cause it was my first room, but every other writer had really good experience in various rooms. Some of them he had worked with on The Good Place, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, um, and others were drama writers. He, he made a, um, a conscious choice to have the room be half comedy, half drama, because this was going to be kind of a dramedy. It was because Feel the mm-hmm. Dreams, you watch the movie, it's not a comedy. There's funny moments in it, obviously. Um, so he was thinking, well, this is my first quote-unquote drama thing. Let's split the room. Mm-hmm. And so the other people that had not worked with him before had done dramas on NBC and had done dramas for streamers. And so, and that's why I got in the room was because he read my drama script and said, let's add Sean to the mix as one of the drama writers. So all that was good. The writers were incredible and they were brilliant. One of them has an overall at NBC, Universal. She was just the showrunner for that show, Keenan. So she has a mm-hmm. very, um, she, she's very adept at, at crafting funny, memorable moments. Um, and so, yeah, the room was great. And Chicago BD, same deal. I mean, all those writers are, are just really, really, really great. How different is it for writing for a streamer? And Feel of Dreams never got never got made. But right. uh, actually, before I get to the next question, what what was the mood like when you got news that like that's it, it's over? With? Yeah, that's a that's a fair question. But I, I it's hard to assess it too accurately because we the room was actually done at that point. So mm-hmm. I mean, I guess like. In group text, the mood was kind of like shock, but like we never saw each other in person to kind of have that eye to eye contact where it's like, oh, man, this is bad. Like, can you believe this? It was more of just like an email from Mike. who was like, I got a phone call when I was on set, like the final set we built for the show that said it's not going. And then he sends us an email and then we talk about it in text for like 10 minutes. Then it's kind of done. It was more of just shock than anything else, though. Yeah. Sort of like when SpaceX's rocket like exploded after launch. <laughs> yeah, exactly like that, Michelle. Jesus, you know, <laughs> you know, there, there was a, there, there was a certain Musk about the room, if, if I have to say. <laughs> I, you know, so. I, I'd imagine. I'd imagine. Does uh, I was the I would have been the perfect um, demographic for that show too. Did you call NBC Universal and tell them that I would have watched it? You know, I did, and they said, well, he's actually the reason we're not doing it. They're like, that mad guy is trouble, you know? I believe so. every word of it. <laughs> so with Feel the Dreams, it was all done, the, the writer's room was all Zoom room. Is that right? Uh, well, it was, it was like uh, 75% Zoom, 25% in person. Right, okay. So I spent a lot of time on Zoom, and I really hate it. I mean, not, not this. This is great. This is for fun. Sure. But like when it's for work... It's like, I cannot do these staff meetings all the time on Zoom. So how did it 
feel and what was it like? Did you guys, were you able to generate the same kind of chemistry, you know, um, being on Zoom? I mean, I, I, I know that in person is probably definitely better, but like, how did you guys make that work? Especially like people's various internet connections and things like that. It wasn't as bad. I mean, first of all, I share your uh, feeling about Zoom. Like, I don't think it's great, especially for a long period of time. It's just not great. Um, but because you're like staring at a screen, right? Then your attention starts to drift and then your eyes start to hurt because you're looking at the screen for eight hours. That being said, it was surprisingly effective because for one of the reasons I already stated, which is that Mike had this ability to just do goofy things, you know, and, and that really kind of jars you and gets you out of the monotony of a six hour Zoom room. The other thing was the personalities he brought in there were very effective in terms of holding your attention, saying funny things, pitching interesting things. I mean, it it was not you would think it'd be monotonous, but it was great being in that room with those personalities because they made it not monotonous. They made it unique and fun and continuously encouraged you to pitch. And and um, and it's the great thing about having a room that's half people drama and half from people that come from the world of comedy is that so many of the pitches are kind of joke pitches. And I don't just mean joke pitches as in like, what if he said X, Y, Z and it was funny. I mean the most ridiculous pitches you've ever heard that they know are not going to get made, but they say them simply to get a laugh. And, and that was so effective in keeping our attention and also kind of getting us to think differently. Like, yeah, what you just pitched is ridiculous, but what if we took a slight turn and kind of did a version of that that was actually this. And it's like, oh, we start to, like, the light bulbs go off. And so all of that stuff combined to make the room great. Like, to make, I, I never had one complaint during that Zoom room, even though you would have thought it would have been terrible. Right. How how long were each of your sessions, would you say? Uh, I mean, it varied, but it was usually between, you know, four hours to six hours. But it would usually get broken up. Like, so, you know, maybe we start at 10 a.m. and we go from yeah. 10 to noon. And he mm-hmm. says, okay, let's break for lunch for 45 minutes. Then we come back mm-hmm. at 12.45 or 1. And then maybe from 1 to 3.30, we go again. And then we're done for the day. So that's four and a half hours, but it's split in half. And it's perfectly manageable. Um, it was not like some of the nightmares I hear where it's eight hours. You know, you start the room at 9 a.m. You break for lunch at 12.30. You come back at 1.30. Then you go all the way through to like 5.30 or something. It's like, no, we did not do that. Right. Is that considered a long day for for a staff writer or it depends uh, on if you're, like what you're how, writing for like a what, long, what, like start at nine end at five thirty six. Uh, I mean, that's a long day over zoom for sure. Right. Uh, I, I, I don't think anyone should have to do that, but a lot of people have been actually probably yeah. most of them have been um, in person. That can be kind of average. It, yeah. it all depends on the showrunner. Like sometimes the showrunner only has five or six hour days, um, but eight hour, eight to nine hours is usually the max unless you're, I mean, look, I've heard of legacy comedy rooms that ran for 12-hour days. You know, they get in at, mm-hmm. at 8, and they have breakfast, lunch, and dinner in the room. And mm-hmm. then they leave at 9 or 10, and then they come back and do it the next day. Um, but I have not heard of that happening as much recently, but I'm, I'm sure it happens in some rooms. Writing for Network now with Chicago PD, is there a, a distinct difference between the two? I know you're in person now, uh, or I would assume mostly, right? Um, and I have another follow-up question to that too, but is that what, what's kind of the biggest difference in terms of flow in terms of like the creative, um, creative structure to things, right? Uh, is it more buttoned down because it's network, uh, you know, network, network TV tends to be kind of more, yeah. in a sense. 
I mean, so what's interesting about Chicago PD is that since it's a procedural, um, you know, as you know, with these procedurals, it's kind of like crime happens in the teaser and then you spend mm-hmm. the next four to five acts solving the crime and then it's done. And it's very non-serialized, whereas mm-hmm. Field of Dreams was serialized and every single episode and every single a plant in the first few episodes has to have a payoff in the final few episodes. And it kind of just becomes this Ouroboros of plants and payoffs. And like with Chicago PD, it's kind of the opposite where it's like every episode, it's its own truncated thing. And so because of that, we didn't really meet as a group very often. We Hmm. met in person for the first two weeks, maybe three weeks. If I'm misremembering, it's two to three weeks. And then we kind of just split and went off in our own world. One guy lives in Jersey. Another guy lives in like San Francisco. Like these, mm-hmm. I have not seen these guys in person in 10 months. Now we will hop on a Zoom every now and then and talk about, hey, the network came to us and like this actually happened. Like the network comes to us and they said, uh, we have access to a subway or a train. Um, so we're thinking about writing an episode that takes place on that. It's kind of like oh, its own thing. Yeah. So then we talk about that as a group, right? Or they'll come to us and say, uh, we decided to include this white nationalist subplot. So it's going to be kind of in the back half where a character gets embedded with this white nationalist group. Um, we need we need a few ideas about what that might entail, right? So we might have group conversations about that. Um, but most of it is not. Most of it is like trading emails with the showrunner or the number two and having Zooms with the showrunner, the number two by myself mm-hmm. um, and talking about my episode and like, hey, here's some notes. Uh, we'll see you in a week. Like, go go back and and change some stuff around, and we'll hop on another Zoom. How many episodes are co-written as opposed to solo? Not many. I, I would mm-hmm. say the vast majority are solo written. I, I'd have to look up the numbers, but it would not shock me if 17 of the 22 episodes are written by one person. Hmm. And it might even be more than that. It might be closer to 19 of the 22. So it is more of a compartmentalization in terms of working with yeah. each individual writer. Yeah, for for sure. You just EP'd, uh, it's EP'd, right? You got your executive producer on it? Oh, well, oh, you're, you're talking about like solo, when I went to your, set? Your episode, yeah. Uh, well, they call that like producing it, like, and so, which is weird because I am not a producer, but I did yeah. produce the episode, which means I was on set to cover it. And to but help you don't get a producer bring. credit on that episode? No, 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 no. Oh, I see. Hmm. Um, I'm very I mean, green yeah, when it, it comes to TV. No, I mean, it's so because I can't tell you how many people have been like, oh, you're a story editor, so you must edit story. And it's like, that makes sense. But no, the answer is no, I don't edit story. It's just my title, Mm -hmm. which makes no sense in the structure of things. Right. To the outsider anyway. Right. But but to answer your question, yes, I I did get to go to set. How was that? Oh, it was great. It was incredible. I mean, listen, that show's been going for 10 seasons. It's a Mm well-oiled machine. Everyone knows what they're doing (laughs) down to the PAs. I mean, these guys are fresh out of college and they still could navigate the set better than I could because I'd never been on a set. It's also a very non-toxic set. Like you always hear the, the, the shows and the sets that get the headlines are the ones that are terrible. Like, Oh, I was sexually harassed or, Oh, I was, uh, you know, fired. And I think it had to do with race. And it's like, that stuff absolutely happens. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the sets, especially this one, do not have any of that stuff. All the actors know all the PA's names. All the actors know the PA's dog's names. They're like, oh, did Max have Max have his surgery? How did it go? You know, it's like they all know each other's lives and they all talk to each other. And it's great. You know, there's so it's no, not this it's not this cold sort of like business like no. stressful environment. No, no. In fact, uh, I won't say what show they're on. But when someone because there's a giant uh, studio lot in Chicago where they film all these shows, all the Chicago shows and like several other shows simultaneously, mm-hmm. including the Chai stuff like that. 
Um, and someone who's on another show came up to me and said, oh, you know, are you here covering an episode? And I said, yeah, I write for Chicago PD. And she was like, oh, my God, I'm so <laughs> jealous. That's the best set. Like, everyone loves each other over there. It's, it's like Shangri-La or something. It's, it's yeah. a utopia. And they're right. I mean, everyone knows everybody. And by the way, they all immediately knew that I must either be the writer or a, a visiting person because they didn't recognize me. Everyone there knows each other so well that if someone is on set that they don't know, they kind of stand out. And so everyone would come up to me and say, oh, did you write this episode? And I'd say, yeah. And they'd be like, oh, it's great to have you. You know, I didn't recognize you, but but I assume that you're the writer and I love your script. Like I had actors coming up to me saying like, man, this is really good. I didn't know where the script was going. And it's like, that was the uh -huh. moment when I first felt like a real writer, as weird as that yeah. sounds. Like, I'm, I'm in my second room. I've been in this town four and a half years. But that moment when an actor who's been on the show for 10 years comes up and says, I had no idea how this was going to end and how this character was going to get out of the situation. Like, you did a really good job. And that was the moment where it's like, holy crap, I'm actually part of the town, you know? That's really rad, too, like, to have that validation. Yeah. 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 For and sure. It, I, I think that's what we all secretly crave. <laughs> it's well, a whole validation. <laughs> so, yeah. well, unless Especially you're a complete a, narcissist or psychopath, and then you don't need it. So, yeah, I don't need any of that validation. But you yeah. people, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but no, just being on a set, I'm sure you were a little bit nervous and just kind of like, you know, had the, that sort of like rookie vibe where you're not sure where to go or where to stand or who to talk to or what to say. Right. But to have that um, support should be great. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's certainly a nervousness that uh, accompanies your first visit to any big operation. And look, I mean, these episodes can cost anywhere from three to $5 million. Right. It's like you're, mm -hmm. you're there to help shepherd a multi-million dollar project anytime you're on an episode. And so from that standpoint, it is nerve wracking a little bit. Um, but I just tried to, uh, you know, suppress that <laughs> and maybe in an sure. unhealthy way, um, try to, I, I tried to seem a little, have a little stoicism and a little, a little bit of confidence since I did write the script. Um, and yeah. Yeah, so, stoicism. But, yeah, there you go. But obviously you're going to have some nerves. Um, yeah. 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 Is there an episode uh, of that like golden age of TV or episodes that you go back to just creatively speaking when you're writing anything and you're like, you're just kind of drawing inspiration from that or like the, the pacing of a moment or like how you felt when you watched a certain scene, mm -hmm. like how has that, that experience of just watching great TV influenced your own writing now? Oof, man, that's a really, really good that's question. That's a loaded one. I know, <laughs> but. Uh, I mean, I, I would say it has greatly influenced me. I Matt, you already know this, but I religiously will rewatch Mad Men, yes. like, you know, I'm mul sometimes multiple times a year. <laughs> um, and well, I, I always try to watch it when I'm feeling like I ha I'm about to do something creative because there is a cadence and a pace and a language to that show that I think is truly unique to the landscape. Like if you'd asked me 10 years ago what my favorite show was, I probably would have said Breaking Bad. Mm. But today I I think, no, no, I think I know that Mad Men has surpassed by leaps and bounds my mm -hmm. feelings for Breaking Bad, even though I think Breaking Bad is a flawless piece of television. I think Mad Men did something a little more complicated and a little more difficult, which is because like if you look at the DNA of Breaking Bad, it's very much we're going to keep your attention every episode by doing something explosive every episode, mm -hmm. which is great. And they did it. And it, it's one of the best shows ever made. 
Mad Men is far more subdued. It's almost Sorry. like Breaking Bad is a shot of adrenaline every episode, and Mad Men's like a glass of wine every episode. <laughs> and it's kind of hard to impress someone with a glass of wine every episode because its job is to kind of put you at ease, like to meditate a little bit and kind of get like slower and, and more contemplative because it has a lot of things on its mind. But um, there's an episode of Mad Men called The Suitcase that's mostly yeah. widely regarded as maybe the best episode that they've ever done. And I do go back and rewatch that every now and then because there's there's a mysticism to it and and, and a um and also just kind of a an interesting dynamic that just explodes into the forefront between Don Draper and um and Peggy and the way that the show explores grief and trauma and also our vices like alcoholism or sex addiction or drug addiction or whatever and the way they wrap it up in the theme of what is advertising, like it's lying to you. Like, what does it mean to tell a lie professionally? And what does it mean to tell a lie in your personal life? And how do they intertwine in a way that they become indistinguishable? Um, I think the show explores that every single episode in a way that no other show has explored its themes. Um, and so I tried to embrace that. And when I was, Allison wrote her short film, which like you said, they're going in production mm -hmm. in a couple months. Um, and when I was trying to help her crack a few things, I would just go back and watch Mad Men. Like, how do they handle theme? How do they handle mm -hmm. metaphor? How do they handle symbolism? Like, is there a symbol in this episode that means something that you don't quite understand it until you watch it the second time? And I think that makes that episode, the suitcase particular, but also the show in general, timeless. Like, I think it's going to stand the test of time as one of the single best pieces of art ever made. But mm -hmm. we'll see. There, there is a quiet intensity to Mad Men that's very difficult to pull off, I think. Uh, I guess both, you know, something like Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul. I know you're a Better Call Saul fan, too. Better Call Saul almost is like a marriage of Mad Men and Breaking Bad. <laughs> I agree. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, makes sense why you would also like that so the, you know, the future then yeah go ahead. wait sorry i just want to say i love what you just said that there's a quiet intensity my, I sh when my dad had never watched Mad Men before um i went over to his house a few years back visiting and i was watching this one episode and when it was over he was like a this is one of the best written shows i've ever seen and it's hard to impress him most stuff i show him he's like okay that's all right but he even uh -huh. out of context he knew this was a really well-written show and then he was like b it's so intense that I don't think I could watch any more of it. And it's so interesting because if you show the average person Mad Men, they might not find it intense. They might find it boring. But my dad knew that there is a quiet, authentic intensity to that show that is just once you understand it, you're like, holy crap, this is almost overbearing in its intensity in mm. terms of its, you know, exploration of human drama and, and psychoses and stuff like that. So speaking of Mad Men, like that pilot script sticks in my mind so hard and I can still like literally just see the lines on the page. And I don't know why I remember reading that whole thing. And then when I get to the end and, you know, it's revealed that, oh, it's, you know, he's he's got a family. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I just remember feeling just so fulfilled. Yeah. From yeah. a base level, isn't it isn't it just because you wanted to know what happens next? No, I don't know. I, I for me, and I, I think this also goes back to the intensity, like you don't actually realize how intense it is. Hmm. until you get to that moment where you're like oh my god a lot just happened a lot more happened than you think happened yeah it was surreal and also mm -hmm. just so 
real at the same time. He's he's at an advertising agency. I mean, it's just everything, just the layers, right? It was just multi-layered and that that was just really, really fulfilling and satisfying for me. So um yeah, Breaking Bad was good too. I remember reading that that pilot script. And it was like that was that was really good, but definitely um the Mad Men pilot was just out of this world. Just reading it, not even watching it, just reading it. Yeah. I'm endlessly intrigued why some people find certain shows just legendary and it's in their scope and their storytelling and another person whose taste is just as good Mm -hmm. will find it horribly boring and not well-written and unrelatable. Yeah. Uh, And that's how I have an answer. Okay. Yeah. No, please. (laughs) So I was, I was reading some really deep psychological stuff Mm -hmm. by, um, uh, I forget his name. Oh, Steven Pinker, who wrote like the mm-hmm. better angels of our nature and, and and major works like that. And the reason we perceive or appreciate or hate or love something has to do with the context of how we were raised, the kinds of lives that we've lived, the environments that we've been you know exposed to or or, or raised in. Right. So someone who is maybe not exposed to as much. I don't know, hasn't has had as much education or maybe hasn't even been in, in a very rich, complex environment. I mean, they might watch something like Mad Men and go, this is boring because what they want is just more obvious in your face kind of stuff. Whereas someone who's who's I don't know, I, I don't even I don't even know what kind of life you would have to lead to appreciate Mad Men in this way. But definitely you would have had to have you know, experience some hardships and things like that, which, which give you appreciation for subtleties perhaps. So. Well, I think, oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. I, mine's, well, mine's a terrible I, hot take. <laughs> I, I had more of a question because that's interesting. I, that's a really interesting analysis, Michelle. And I think, I think there's a lot of truth of it. I'm curious what that, what that theory has to say about the notion that you can grow artistically, not just as a consumer of art, but as mm-hmm. a creator of art. I, yeah. I do think there's room. And I, I will admit in a, you know, in a moment of shame here that when I first started watching Mad Men, I was bored by it. I was like, this looks mm-hmm. like a soap opera to me. This is a bunch of people who are having sex with a bunch of other people and they're drinking a lot and they're smoking a lot. And it's like, what, like, why do people love this show? By the way, when I started it, it had already won the Emmy in the Golden Globe for best drama, like four years in a row. Right. And so, so you're like, wow, this better be amazing. Right. And I start watching it and I'm like, okay, this is all right. And I've never written anything at this point, by the way. Yeah. But I did grow to appreciate it in a way that I could not have foreseen at all. And now it has obviously become my favorite show of all time. Mm-hmm. To me, that is a form of artistic growth that yes. I personally am proud of because I grew to understand the show in a way that I did not at first. And I'm curious, right. and, and Matt, obviously hop in because I feel like I interrupted you too, but I'm curious what that theory that you just posited has to say about our penchant as people for artistic growth, both in what we consume and what we create. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say to that, but I can completely relate having changing perspectives on things that like mm. maybe I hated at one point and then I grew to really appreciate. For example, <laughs> um, uh, uh, Clockwork Orange, okay, mm. that movie, 
I watched it when I was like 20, okay? And I hated it, like really hated it. And I, I you know, Kubrick, I know, you know, he's, he's a talent, right? <laughs> Artist, all this stuff. And, I, and it, it's a lauded, it's a lauded movie and I hated it. Now it took me several years before like going back to it and I'm like, okay, okay. I see, I see the deeper elements in here. It's, it's like someone, you know, who goes and looks at a Jackson Pollock painting. I used to hate those, by the way. And then I, I grew to love them, you know? So, so yeah, I totally, I totally um, concur. There's, there's artistic growth that just happens for all of us. And, but again, I think it's a product of how much you've lived and, you know, what you're exposed to and, and how, you know, when, like, totally. like when you were talking about the jokes, right. Or the joke pitches that, that people are throwing at you, it makes you look at things in a different light, it makes you think outside of the box, makes you, forces you out of, out of like, just a, you know, you're comfortable. Okay. I, I see these five objects around me, but like, oh wait, there's stuff behind it. Or if I turn it just a little bit, it looks different, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like a kaleidoscope. So I think, I think, yeah, that, that artistic growth, it, it's, it is like, as we grow, as, as we are exposed to more things, like we change our kaleidoscope. And so that, that allows us to appreciate more perhaps mm-hmm. some things mm-hmm. we didn't before. Which is why it's so rare and so difficult to write a piece of media, film, TV, play you know theater whatever uh and make it so broadly appealing to hit on all those maturity levels you know um like my 10 year old 11 year old would watch mad men and not really care i wouldn't let her watch mad men i would probably let her watch (laughs) mad men i take all that back um she watched hereditary two weeks ago actually can watch mad (laughs) just fast forward through the next scenes but like you appreciate different things at different parts of your life and to have that sort of like cross demographic show is hard and like i'm sure there's a secret to it that is a whole nother podcast series of um picking apart storytelling but my favorite show i think of all time officially now is succession and i didn't like it either when i first watched it and i stopped watching it and i picked it yeah, up after the I'm, second i'm season. waiting to appreciate that one. <laughs> oh, you will I, maybe you won't oh. Yeah, I'm curious uh, about Succession. When you stopped watching it, was it during season one, or was it like did you finish first episode? One, you were like first no, first episode. I couldn't okay. get the first. Episode. Okay. I'm like I don't like these people, and they're stupid, and it's like weird, and the tone is off, and I don't get it. And then yeah. I got it. You know, it's like you have to see a little part of yourself in a in a show's character or a film's mm-hmm. character, I think, to really kind of have that sort of bond with it. And I see myself in each one of those characters, for better or for worse. And that's why I connected so well with it. And when they say, here's my little hot take, which isn't a hot take, but I, I don't know. The whole representation matters thing, right? Not to get overly progressive for once, but I, I believe that 100%. But there's two sides to that. It's representation matters in terms of like the visual image that you see on the screen. Like I want to see people that look like me. I want to see people of my own gender, of my own sexuality and so forth. But there's also a thematic representation I think you have to connect to as well. I see people that look like me on screen all the time that I just don't care about. But like, I'll watch something like when I was a kid, I'd watch something like Roseanne, right? I'm not, I don't know anything about the Midwest. I didn't grow up like poor, right? I I didn't grow up in that sort of world. But like what they're talking about, I connected so well to, even though I was living in the suburbs in Los Angeles. The Cosby show, the same thing. I wasn't wealthy. You guys may be shocked. I'm not black um, either. And I don't live in, I know. I don't want to, I didn't know how to break this to you. 
I was brought here under false pretenses. I'm out of here. I'm sorry. Man, these Zoom filters. And I, <laughs> what if I had a Zoom filter that was... That was, oh, uh, God. Anyway. <laughs> a, a, a blackface Zoom filter? That would be the worst thing in the world. Oh, my God. Oh Twitter my would God. explode. Holy shit. I would I would work my way up the TV world just to get in a Zoom room and show up the first day, and then they'll never hear from me again. They'll be like, who is that guy? Uh, Uh, Oh, no. Anyway, let me change the mic here. Okay. I also did not grow up in New York City, but the Cosby show and the stuff that they were talking about, it just hit hit hard with me. And that Mm kind of gets you through, like, your own real-life experiences. Like, Sean was bullied when he was younger. I was bullied when I was younger. I think Sean was bullied. I know he was. Okay. I was, yes, yes, for sure. Okay. L- listen, I was a morbidly obese uh, brown kid what? with braces. Okay, morbidly so, like, <laughs> Yeah. So, oh, one hundred percent. And uh, and and so, how could you be all even one of those things? You're probably going to get bullied. All three of them. Oh, it's, yeah. it's done. Yeah, science sealed delivered. Psych- you have psychological <laughs> issues for days. It's going to be great. Sure. So, but you use TV and you use media as, as an escape outlet, and that's why it's it is important to have that those those dualities of representation. I think in in scripted work. So anyhow, that was my side tangent. Agreed, one hundred percent agreed. And also, and also, I'll say as a kid, um, kind of the same as you, Matt. The stuff that I grew up that really drew me was. It kind of it drew, it would draw me for different reasons. I do think you have to relate to the characters, obviously. But mm-hmm. like for instance, I remember flipping through vividly, like sitting on my bed as like a twelve year old, flipping through the TV one night, and I landed on this show where the people that were talking sounded so smart and so confident, and the dialogue was so quick. And I was like, "What is this? Like, what are these people?" Walk- Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, I was like, "What these people walking around this hallway trying to solve the world's problems?" And it's the West Wing. Oh, it's what you said. Now. It's Aaron Sorkin. Oh my God, I was right. <laughs> you were exactly. You knew where I was going. And so, as a twelve-year-old who I, I guess at that point I was in middle school, but not high school. Um, when you started watching West Wing when you were twelve. Well, that's that's how I first found it was flipping oh. through. I landed on NBC, and there was like one quick conversation where they're like exchanging dialogue. And I remember my 12-year-old brain was like, I did not know people could talk like this. Like, this is incredible. And so what drew me to that was the talking, was the dialogue. I was like, these people know stats. And obviously, that's kind of a nerdy thing to be drawn to, I think, as a (laughs) 12-year-old. Usually, as a 12-year-old, maybe you want explosions or you want... You know, romance, or you want something flashy, or special effects, or whatever. It's no not you fast people, fast <laughs> people talking, right? Exactly. And so, when I watched it, I could not believe what I was hearing. I was like, I've never a, I've never heard someone talk like this. B, I've never seen a, a show like this. Um, but at the same time, I was drawn to stuff like uh, Angel and Buffy because it was like this kind of fantasy-driven action stuff that also hmm. had sharp dialogue. By the way, very, very sharp, very witty banter. Um, and maybe that's what drew me to TV and movies eventually, like to the deeper stuff. And certainly Mad Men, the cadence of that show as well. Like there's just a it, it's not fast like like Aaron Sorkin, but it is artificial in that people mm-hmm. don't talk in real life the way they talk in Mad Men. It's a yeah. very structured, like he's uh, very diligent about how they talk to each other. Um, and sometimes it can feel stilted. Like if you watch scenes, you're like. Did they cut something out? Because that response doesn't, he's not responding. He's saying something else. And it's like, but that's the cadence of the show. Is it moves well, it's very, very fast in some way? Yes, yes. And so, 
So that's what, uh, so I was just saying that to kind of piggyback off what you said, Matt, which is, yeah, we're, we're drawn to stuff as kids, if we can relate to it. Or, or for me, I think in particular, I wanted to aspire to it. Like I wanted to be able mm-hmm. to talk like those people talked um, and be smart like they're smart. And so that's what drew me to a lot of stuff in those early years. Yeah. This is fascinating. I could I could skew off onto this particular topic for a long time, but I do want to, um, since we've been chatting for a while and Sean's a busy man, <laughs> I do have one last question. Um going back to what you mentioned about things that are timeless. I, I want to keep this podcast timeless, but I also feel like it's it, uh, each episode is kind of a time capsule in a sense. So I do want to touch upon the writer strike 2023. Uh, what's sort of the temperature amongst WGA writers in terms of, I know the vote was like 97% or whatever it was right in favor of having the strike, but there's still 3% of the people that voted no. Are you seeing, or is there some people that you've seen that are like, why are we doing this? We shouldn't be doing this. Now is the bad time. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Well, two things. First, it, it was like 97.9%. So, you know, there's around yeah. 2% who's, who said no. So don't, we don't want to make it bigger than it was. No, but, there's like, yeah, 50 people. Uh, I think it equates to like a couple hundred people or something. Yeah. Um, out, out of thousands. But that being said, I haven't really talked to any writers who, like, and I've been to several big, big meetings, like at the Writers Guild Theater, where they can hold like mm-hmm. a couple hundred people. The, the feeling does seem to be that the current landscape is economically untenable, both in terms of how long they have to wait to be in rooms and also how much they're paid once they get into those rooms. They don't think mm-hmm. it's commensurate with the work that they're doing. And so do I haven't talked to anyone who's said I voted no. They, I mean, look, and, and that might be a bias of my own. It might be something where they just don't want to talk to people and tell them that they voted no. I think that's right. fair because you might get your ass beat, even though writers are like the <laughs> least fighting people ever. Um, but uh, yeah, that seems to be my my take of the temperature. I don't have a. I don't know what the solution is to streaming and residuals and, and, and all that. Because a lot of these writers haven't worked in six, nine, 12 months. So if you're telling them you better not strike because you won't work for three months, they're like, where the hell have you been? I haven't worked in 12 months. Like right. this, this, another three months yeah. is going to feel like normal to me. And that, and they'll say that's the point is that it should not be normal. Like if if they had good residuals and stuff for streaming, then for them, a threat of, of three months of no work would have some teeth to it. And it's like they're saying it doesn't because we haven't worked in months or we haven't gotten sure. a paycheck in months because uh, we don't get good residuals from streamers. Um, or because this mini room only lasted six weeks instead of the normal 12, 15, 20 weeks that uh, right. a room that size should run. Um, they have all these reasons why a strike isn't going to hurt us. And so I think the feeling is that a strike hurt the studios and the networks and the production companies more than it mm-hmm. hurts the writers. I, whether they're right, I don't know, but I think that's the feeling right now. Since we're still recording, uh, add on a little bonus question. Uh, what is your favorite TV character? Across any show, gut instinct, go. I'd probably say Peggy from Mad Men, honestly. Um, because I, I think she has such a, she has, she definitely has my favorite arc of any character on any TV show. Because what she evolved into, like, I, I think one of the things, this is going to be a diatribe, maybe I'll just keep it to like 30 seconds, but one of the things that really gets to me in a lot of art these days is characters are more, caricatures of themes and ideas than they are fully fledged people so like you might have a character who's a woman and what she is is she's a stand-in for feminism and women's rights and it's like well that's a great thing to explore 
but that should not be their entire personality because if that's mm-hmm. all they are, like not even the Twitter warriors and the keyboard warriors on social media, that's not even their whole shtick. Like that might mm-hmm. be who they are online, but then when they go to sleep at night or when they go shopping or when they go hang out with their friends, you're, they're probably seeing a different side of them. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things I love about Peggy is that she is a woman in a man's world that has to do certain things that you know men don't have to do. But at the same time, that is not her whole character. She she can be cynical. She could be craven. She could be manipulative. Like she does all these things that play into who she is as a person, as opposed to what she quote represents. Um, yeah. Like there's a great there's a great scene in one of the episodes where she's like talking to this black woman, and the black woman's talking about how um, she can't do certain things, and Peggy's like, "Well, I can't do those things either." And it's like. The way that she's saying it feels kind of racist and kind of naive, but I love it because in another world, they would have been like, oh, we can't have Peggy say these things. We have to have her understand where the black lady's coming from. And it's like, right, dude, right, a right. lot of white women did not understand where the black women were coming from. And it was painfully obvious to everyone but them. So I loved that because it's like we're showing her flaws, warts and all. Um, and she's just so, so fully fleshed out, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that, too. Yeah. Good answer. Yeah. Thank you. Great thank answer. You. Well, thank you, Sean, yes. for joining us today. Thank you. Thank uh, you for anytime. Open invite. I <laughs> don't like to double up those, so this will probably be the last time. But <laughs> anyway. Appreciate it. Thank you. Good luck with all of your projects oh, and yes. with uh, your future goals and everything. Thank you. I appreciate that. You can follow Sean Colin Smith on Twitter. Um, he'll love it if you tag him and ask him questions about television and for advice and send him unsolicited scripts. <laughs> That's the best <laughs> one. Send me a script and and I will, yeah, just send me a log line and I don't know you send me a script. It'll definitely get read. Yeah, uh, especially a red, spec I mean, of the show he's currently on. Do that. Yeah, oh yeah, send me a Chicago <laughs> PD spec. See how fast it gets thrown into the digital recycling bin. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. Don't, don't, I'm kidding everyone, don't do that because obviously yes, like, they don't. can't read it for legal reasons. Yep. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's all a joke. Yeah. Uh, That's the only social media platform I believe he's actively on. So there you go. I've I've plugged your Twitter. I'm also on Instagram as Sean Two Names. Come on now. He doesn't post it often. Only when he goes to lavish parties in LA. Sean, thank you. Thank you. Hope we meet again. (laughs) Okay. Is this your favorite podcast? I've never listened to it before. Uh, Is this the favorite podcast that you have been on? Even though, Absolutely, 100%. Yes. Uh, that was great. The second, like, the last, like, 68% of that was Last we love 68% of that. I'm come up with those stats. Well, I'm keeping. I is Aaron already. Sorkin writing your script right now? Just he is. I wish Aaron Sorkin could just script out my days. There you really? Go. No. I can talk with big words about politics. And... Did you realize, Michelle, that I didn't hit record? Well, fortunately for you, I did. Wait, but how did I not hit record? I don't know. I don't know, Matt. It said recording Wait. the whole time. Maybe I had stopped yeah. it. it. It said, I did see something that said, like, the screen is now being recorded. And I said, okay, yeah, but okay, that got was it. Me. So, and oh, that was you? Okay. Matt, did you it's, also it, hit No, it said no, recording. Just, it's fine. I got it.